Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Garo Husenjian. Garo is the iOS core team lead at Tinder, and he's here today to chat with me about our experience at Swift Summit. How's it going? Going great. Yeah, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be back. Yeah. We were uh, we were working so hard and then we just took, you know, some time off and we went to Swift Summit and then, you know, we just came back and went straight straight back into work. Yeah. Straight back into work mode. So, how was Swift Summit? Did you enjoy it? Swift Summit was amazing. Uh, it's always been one of my favorite Swift conferences and it was the first opportunity I had to speak at the conference and it was, uh, you know, didn't disappoint. I, I had the best uh, experience. Yeah. So it was just, um, I guess last weekend, right? Or, or it was Monday and Tuesday. Yeah. Like early next week, uh, last week. Yeah. Yeah. So today's Sunday. Um, I'm going to put out this episode like in a couple days. And so, yeah, it was, it was basically a week ago. Uh, it was on a Monday and a Tuesday. Uh, Garo went up there to, uh, and it was in San Francisco at the Palace of Fine Arts Theater, for those that don't know. Garo went there to speak. Uh, he gave a talk on architecture, and we're going to talk about that uh, a little later. And I actually went up there, too, um, as an MC. So it was really cool. Um, we both got to go up there and have a good time together. Yeah, that was great. Just just to have you there was was uh, like kind of added to the experience I I knew, you know, that, that we were in good hands, uh, you know, as the speakers and you did a great job as an MC. That was nice. Thank you. I know I might have already told you this, but a little backstory on like how I ended up emceeing. You know, I just joined Tinder and we're all sitting together and Garo's going to go give a talk there. And I'm like, man, I want to go to Swift Summit, but I don't want to be like the guy that just joined the company is like, send me to a conference. <laughs> so I'm like, hmm, what can I do? So I message uh, Ida and Baron and I'm like, hey guys, like, can I interview people during like the fireside? Can I maybe give a talk? Uh, what can I do? How can I get involved? And they were like, that all sounds good, but what about you emceeing? And I was like, yeah, sounds good. And then I was like, Garo, um, I'm emceeing Swift Summit. So it looks <laughs> like I'm going too. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, you, you worked that out pretty well. I mean, I think I think the uh, the conference really needs like great MCs, right? It, there's there's a lot of speakers. They need these intros, and um, seems like Baron and Ida do such a great job putting it all together. Uh, they don't need that added sort of um, layer of of actually being on stage for the entire conference, and there's a lot going on um, that they're also like dealing with. So it's it's great to have dedicated MCs for the conference. Right. Yeah, they're doing so much work. And uh, they kept coming backstage and t telling me and Andy like, oh, thank you uh, so much. Uh, thank you so much. You guys are doing such a great job. It did seem like um, we were able to relieve them from from doing extra work. So that was good. Yeah. And keep the keep the audience, you know, engaged between the speakers while they're doing the, the technical, you know, obviously you have to replace the laptops and, you know, move the clicker and all that stuff between each each talk. So um, there's definitely a few minutes there to keep people going. Yeah. So 
hopefully we were um, pretty entertaining. Uh, I feel like a lot of people gave some really good feedback, uh, said that yeah. we did a good job. So that felt nice. And shout out to Andy Hope, my co MC. He did a great job as well. So yeah, it was super fun. Super cool. Okay, so let's just talk a little bit about the conference um, in in general. And also, like this year, Apple participated. They sent two Apple engineers to give uh, talks and then a bunch of other Swift like compiler engineers. And even like non-Swift, I feel like, uh, were there. They were like doing labs and like they were sitting there like just you were there and you could talk with them. Like I chatted, you and I chatted with Slava for like however long. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was so cool. Great and, to have like access to those guys. Yeah. And uh, so as a conference is like a traditional kind of conference. Um, it was two, two days, main track. So everybody pretty much watches the same uh, talk. And then a lot of breaks in between, uh, like snack breaks and lunch. Um, so a lot of time for socializing. And then they have a fireside um, area after uh, during every break. So you can chat with the conference speakers. And then there was the IBM labs, the Apple labs, and then they have all these booths where, um, you know, where sponsors are and stuff like that. So I haven't been to that many conferences, just Swift Summit. I was there last year. You were there as well. Um, and then I've been to DubDub. But I know you've been to um, more conferences than I have. What are your perspectives on, like, where does it sort of, not rank, but I know you said it's your favorite, but like, how does it compare in terms of conferences? Yeah, it's it's. It's, it hits a lot of sweet spots in terms of the size. It's not, it's not too large. It's not too small. Um, the venue is amazing. Uh, I love the Palace of Fine Arts. I've actually been there for shows and things, so so I've always loved that space. Um, the, uh, the subject, like, they always get these great speakers, and I feel like there's a bit of the timing of the conference uh, with respect to the Swift sort of release life cycle is interesting, and that usually... Swift gets, you know, the, the announcements are made and, you know, in the summer. And then by the time the OS ships, uh, they're consistently just at that stage where there's a new version of Swift out and, um, you know, and we're talking about sort of what is it like to migrate from, you know, last year it was to Swift three, this year to Swift four. Um, and there are talks that are, you know, kind of, um, going over some of the new features of Swift four. And, um, I think we're all in a place where, we're probably still pretty fresh with um, either the migration work. Uh, if we're using Swift in our project, uh, we've either you know finished the migration or we might just be about to start it. And um, I think it's great to just be around um, other people at this time of year. And so that I think that plays into it a little bit. The timing's really good. Um, and then of course meeting these people that we um, kind of hear about, know about. Um, maybe we read their blogs. And we're, you know, obviously very interested in um, what they have to say um, going forward. And then uh, also meeting new people and, and getting more perspectives. Um, so some of the other conferences I've been to have been similar. There's always great, um, you know, our community is amazing. So we um, are really lucky to have that. So anytime we can go to a conference, um, whether it's smaller or larger, it shouldn't really matter too much. Um, if the speakers are, are interesting and, you know, they're working in the industry and they're kind of trailblazing in different ways, you know, people like choose different areas of, of the, uh, either the, the ecosystem or the, the software or the language, you know, layers, like you can find a niche, right. And then, and then talk about it. And I think that's, that's what people, um, 
sort of do such a great job at, at you know, Swift Summit and other, other similar conferences. Um, I attended a few CocoConfs uh, sort of in prior years, and I always had great experiences there as well. Um, the Yosemite Conference, which they did a couple times. Um, I think they did it twice now, maybe three times. I'm not sure. But um, this is a little bit different, I think, because the Swift Summit goes much more into sort of a technical track. And oftentimes we want to kind of balance sort of a technical deep dive or, um, you know, balance that with uh, sort of perspectives and stories um, just to kind of get uh, the daily sort of um, what we do is write code and we want to sort of see a lot of code and experience code and people's perspective and ideas about code. And then also um, how do we approach the the teamwork and the, and the community and communication and, um, you know, planning and these kinds of things. So, um, you know, that's kind of a lot, but I, I think I've gotten a lot out of the conferences that I've been to. Um, and it's pretty different from WWDC. If you think about Apple's goals of kind of presenting the latest technologies right. um, for that whole week, it's very much about Apple's APIs. I think Swift Summit is, is different in that you're getting people's creative um, you know, efforts and, and what they've been working on. And it might not fit directly into sort of Apple's, you know, iOS story, which is mostly what we're getting at WWDC. Right. One of my favorite things about going to these uh, conferences is, you know, meeting people and, um, you know, hanging out with them and chatting with them. I didn't get to do that much this time because I was backstage a lot of the time mm-hmm. uh, preparing for the next conference, uh, you know, the speaker. But I um, I remember chatting with Ida and Baron and they were saying like, yeah, we noticed that from last year. People really love socializing. So they actually made extra time for um, for these breaks, these like sort of nutrition breaks for people to chat, which I thought was really mm-hmm. good. Yeah, that's I, I didn't think about the timing there, but I, I thinking back, I, that makes sense that there's more time to socialize uh, between the talks. So that was pretty good. So in terms of the speakers, though, was there anything in particular that you remember that stood out um, that you, uh, you know, wanted to chat about? Uh, for instance, uh, let's see, I really liked Chris Bailey's um, IBM, I think he called it like state of the union in terms of swift on the server yeah Um, he's been doing that recap uh style talk every year and where have we reached and i think that's really good to hear about and get get the update yeah i thought that was really awesome and um so i'd be curious to know like what which one sort of was your favorite but i really liked uh, chris bailey's because uh there was just a really i don't know he just does a really good job i feel like I, i feel like last year i had the same feeling where i was like wow swift on the server amazing i'm gonna go do it and then this year i had the same feeling but one of the things i thought was really awesome which was that all the work they did on foundation and how many ibm employees are like helping get foundation to run on linux and it's basically there and they even announced like officially um, foundation on Linux provided by or from IBM or something like that with this like official tagline. So shout out to Chris Bailey and all the um, IBM guys. I met a couple of them. Ian Partridge, I believe, uh, is his last name. Um, Lloyd, um, who's actually one of the first people I chatted with, um, at, you know, when I got kind of connected with IBM, I had Pat Bohr on once before and Chris Bailey. So shout out to Lloyd um, Rosen, dang it, it starts with an R and he told me. Uh, any, anyways. Uh, and David. David, David, David. David Okun, he was, he was giving a lot of the little talks about um, 
the 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 functions like the Swift functions on the server. Oh, cool! So kind of like serverless kind of setup. Oh, it's pretty okay. interesting as I don't well. Know if I met him, yeah. but I actually ended up chatting with Lloyd for a really long time. So I'm gonna oh, cool. just shout him out again. Uh, yeah. What up, Lloyd? Okay. Anyway, so what would you say? <laughs> was there anything in that, that stood out for you in terms of? I the mean, talks? I love so many of the talks. I, I um, well, the first thing is um, I love Daniel Steinberg. So he's one of the original. Um, sort of Swift educators that I was learning from uh, when I was just still doing ob- ex- exclusively Objective C, and um, it was actually I think my first conference, which was the it might have been very very soon after the Swift announcement um, in the kind of like early days, and he did a sort of a quick start uh, or kickstart course uh, with uh, CocoConf in Seattle. And so my first exposure to Swift was via Daniel Steinberg's um, kickstart course. And this was like a two day uh, kind of thing, or I think it was actually one full day. Then he had a couple of little follow on things, but um, really, really one of the best, um, I think, uh, sort of programming educators that I've ever met. Um, and I, I always, I always love his style. Um, so he talked about maps and how we can kind of write our own maps and use them. Um, I mean, referring to the map, you know, method on, uh, on like array, for example, and, or optional, for example. And so he was giving examples of how you could kind of create your own on different, different types. And that's really interesting. Um, there are a few talks that stood out actually. Um, I love Brandon, Brandon Williams talk on the, the server side, sort of, he was showing how uh, for his server side Swift implementation on top of any of the, uh, web frameworks, you can build um, sort of a, a system of uh, routing and and uh, a functional style of server-side Swift that allows you to compose um, functions together and sort of build complex uh, behaviors on the server. And uh, he was using something called phantom types. I don't know if you remember this presentation. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was really, really cool. I, I, I'm looking forward to going back and um, watching that when the videos come out. Um the other one I'll call out real quick, just because uh, we're calling them out. I, I thought Ryan's talk, um, Ryan Nystrom from uh, from Instagram, was really interesting. And he didn't really do a lot of code in his talk, but there was a lot of sort of how they approach stability and infrastructure and strategy. And, and I thought it was a really nice um, sort of thought-provoking discussion about, about how, um, you know, how you manage quality at scale, which is a really, really important topic i think and and so i thought that was really cool there were a few other great ones um but i could go on and on yeah brandon case's talk was was really cool uh, how he handles dependency injection with something called reader monads this was this was pretty fascinating um anyway yeah I, i'll stop there i i think i have three more i, I could call it <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, and then the, the apple I, I should say the apple talks were great because they're they were kind of um, Joe Groff was talking about, for example, how Swift is a language that was designed for reflection, and he broke it down in terms of um, sort of what we can do now and how that's uh, very much not the big picture for Swift, and how there's so much more um, that we're that we're sort of still working up to, um, and so we, I, we have a lot to look forward to in the coming couple of years. Yeah, I even had the honor of introducing Joe Groff, uh, which I was. I was pretty, you know, proud of myself there. And uh, anyways, his talk apparently inspired some people. Uh, when I went, when I left the, you know, to go to the break room, I uh, met 
Um, I'm going to shout out uh, Jeff, Ethan, and Randall, I believe. They're from Boston. Uh, I can't remember where they work. Oh, Wayfair. It's like some furniture mm-hmm. company or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyways, they were all like, yeah, I really like Joe's talk, The Reflection. I want to, I want that. I want to implement that right now. Like they were talking about how it inspired them to want to contribute to the Swift um, compiler or Swift, the Swift project. And I was like, yeah, do it, you know? So that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, okay, so overall, um, this is something I kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of struggling with because I, I, I want it to come across as constructive. And so I want to focus more on like the future, like where are we going? And so to me, like the content, although great, I feel like a lot of it wasn't necessarily Swift focused. Mm-hmm. And so like moving forward, like what what would you want? Like, do you want, do you feel like that we can improve in terms of if we're calling this Swift Summit, if we're calling this a Swift conference, like how could we improve? For for instance, like me, I would want to like really focus on Swift and like every talk should definitely have like a Swift, a strong Swift component, right? It should be like, cool things you can do with Swift or ways to get involved with Swift, these kinds of things. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's good to have a balance. I think it, I personally definitely wanted to do more um, sort of at the Swift level. And my talk was um, sort of more high level. Um, and I, I did struggle with that. I wanted, I think it's, it's kind of important to see sort of working examples and um, that kind of thing. Uh, the talks were uh, about 25 minutes. So I think the 25 minute uh, time frame is a little tricky because it's not quite enough to kind of get into a live coding um, right. scenario. But I think I think a couple people did a little bit of live coding um, and it seemed to be fine. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think more more swift language focus would be would be welcome, but at the same time, um, I think we got a pretty good dose of it, and yeah, I think balance is also good uh, that we can do a little bit of uh, high level and low level and mix it up, and I think that that saves people f- people from getting kind of really bogged down, um, you know, especially if the if the talks are distributed, so you're not getting all swift for like you know many hours in a row. Okay, is there anything else um, that you could see like improving on? Um, really, anything uh, like going forward uh, let's say you know they're out there listening to us like what would you want to see um, different or what, what do you think could be better yeah i mean better food I, yeah better for now <laughs> i don't know i wouldn't I, I you know what the thing is garrick i i am so easy to keep happy yeah um i i honestly like being around those people and being being uh, in this in this community and everyone's so excited yeah um you know i in some ways i wouldn't change a thing um but i can tell you for sure i had uh probably another half an hour easily uh at least another 20 minutes of material um that i would have loved to share so that was that was a challenge for me it was really um cutting it down even uh, i think i ended up with like 12 or 13 slides which is very little compared to some of the other speakers. And um, yeah, I think I actually went over time or I might've, I might've gotten my clock down um, and then, and then ran over just enough to recap and, and wrap up the talk. So um, 
so I, yeah, I would, if anything, I would say it would be great to have a couple of those like 45 minute slots, um, or to gauge each speaker, uh, how much time they kind of want or need. But mm. I think, um, the decision was a good decision because if we had longer talks, we would have had fewer speakers and I couldn't imagine cutting any of the speakers. So, um, in that way, I think it was, it was a compromise that was a good one. Yeah, that's really tough. I mean, you have maybe longer talks, but fewer speakers. How long though could a, a long talk really be? I mean, I even think even like Apple's, well, I guess Apple's keynote, for instance, that goes sometimes two and a half hours, but that's like a keynote. Um, no, that's different. But but forty five minutes, I think, is is a good technical talk. Okay. Um, if it's if it's a deep dive, if you're doing some code, you're doing some demo, you have some slides. I think that gives you the ability to kind of pivot at one point. Like you share all the concepts at the high level, and then you stop and do a demo. I mean, it's almost it's almost uh, too formulaic, right? Like because that's but but I think that's what you want. You want someone to understand a, a thing, and then actually see it happening in real time. Um, yeah, Apple and does yeah, that. They do that, yeah, because they have these forty-five minute slots. They're actually hour slots, and then they they stop at forty-five, and then give people time to, you know, take a break, uh, go to the next hall if they're you know walking from room to room or whatever. Right. Um, for a smaller conference, that's not an issue. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit less of an issue. So, besides um, the time issue, uh, do you have anything else you'd like to share in terms of like being a speaker? Um, at, uh, I mean, this was your first time being like a, a speaker at a conference, right? I mean, you've done lots of meetups, um, but is there anything you want to share in terms of like first time uh, speaking? Will you do it again? Um, yeah, just anything? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to do it again. I, I think having a, a great message is important. So um, for me, I think anytime I would commit to doing a talk, I think I would I would be very thoughtful about what I'm sharing. So you know, is it generally useful? I really like the kind of talks where I feel like everyone gets something out of it. Um, and I know that occasionally you're going to have these more um, sort of niche talks that um, might be really interesting to some people and other people have no direct application for that particular thing. If it's like one particular technology or, um, or a neat sort of, like maybe it's, it's um, this very theoretical sort of, um, sort of functional programming talk and maybe you work somewhere where that's not what everyone's doing. Right. Um, you may not be able to like immediately apply it, but, but at the same time, I think being exposed to these things is extremely um, beneficial. Even if you're not sort of buying in a hundred percent, I think taking the, the sort of embedded wisdom of these things and applying them to your, to your daily work is, is, is still really great. Yeah. I mentioned that to, um, some uh, to this audience after Brandon Case's talk, I was like, you know, who understood everything he said? And like one person raised their hand. I was like, you know, don't worry, just let the information wash over you. And that's what I tell everybody at my uh, meetups, especially like the beginner meetups. Like, don't worry if you don't understand everything. It's just good to be exposed. Yeah, um, and I I think you know for what it's worth, being at the sort of the high level talk um, was I feel at least everyone was able to understand or connect with um, the, the subject of the talk. And the benefit was, I feel like everyone could project their own experience onto my talk. Um, so that was sort of like uh, maybe a benefit to it that in some ways that was a good decision to kind of keep it um, high level. And um, although, you know, I guess, I guess there's a lot of detail. We can talk about that later, but, um, but I, th I felt like people got, uh, 
got this the people connected with um i think that that architecture subject because it's something that obviously everybody um cares about and thinks about and so and everyone's doing different things so chances were pretty good that i i sort of um, touched on something that they had either thought about or tried or continue to, to experiment with. Okay. So let's, um, since we're sort of already talking about your, your talk specifically, let's, um, let's get into it. Uh, your, like, tell me, tell us a little bit about your talk. Just give us your talk right now, actually. Give, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, totally. Um, just tell us a little bit about your talk. Like what were you, what was it about? What were you hoping to achieve? And then maybe we can talk about like, things you wanted to talk about or, or couldn't or anything that you like missed or wish you could have talked about? Yeah. So my talk was entitled Architecture and Context. And my goal was to share what we were doing at Tinder with our architecture. And I think what was interesting about it was that we looked at a lot of the popular architectures. And rather than just kind of taking one of those and following them to the letter, we kind of started doing a, a, a bunch of analysis. And that analysis was, you know, what's really strong about one pattern versus another. And um, we ended up cherry picking uh, different architectures and re sort of combining them or kind of compose them together into something that um, was new and uh, somewhat different. I think, um, if anything, I would say it's it's a little bit more complete than each of the other things simply because we felt there was something missing in each of these things. Um, so one example would be if we just look at MVC, um, the simplest example, the creator of MVC actually um, didn't stop at MVC, right? The, they continue to work. This is a guy called Trigva Rieskog. He's um, uh, a very well-respected researcher um, in Norway, the University of Oslo, and he continued working on architecture, um, you know, well past the the ascendance of MVC. And his second, like the the part two of MVC, is something he calls DCI, and we were using it at you know at Tinder, but uh, kind of experimentally at first. And it was interesting to try to make that work. And it, and it kind of worked in many ways and it didn't work in some ways. And we were also sort of exposed to MVVM. We had some in our code. We were exposed to clean architecture. We were borrowing um, ideas from clean architecture around how to make things testable and some of the new roles that are in there, um, which I can talk about a little bit. Um, but we had also um, looked at Viper, not necessarily... Um, to sort of do Viper architecture, but um, certainly inspired by sort of how they handle their routing. And um, also their inspiration was similarly based on clean architecture. And we put all this stuff together and came up with an architecture that we call Discover. And this is something that I feel addresses, um, you know, a, a lot of the needs I would think of most sort of modern, um, you know, app development projects. It could be even more generalized, I think, to more software development, um, especially if there's a front end, I think, because the user experience um, is difficult to capture in a typical sort of object-oriented way, right? So we just have a view controller and a view model, and it's not really obvious how to, um, how to structure the code such that it's really easy to understand. And I could tell you how the user is going to progress through 
a particular use case or like a series of steps that they're going to take, you know, that, that they're going to take action in the app. And I think one of the key um, sort of insights from DCI um, is that there's no value in software for what it is, right? It only sort of creates value for what it does, which is the behaviors, which are these use cases that um, that are executing, right? So the user is doing something. And the fact that it maps to their mental model, that they can kind of see things on the screen that they recognize as, you know, whatever the, the, the thing is that you're doing has some sort of data associated with it. And with that data, there's going to be some language associated with that. And the idea is if you can take the user's mental model, encapsulate it in code and sort of throw that over the wall on the other side, you have this programmer, right? Who's going to now take that mental model and, and sort of animate it, right? You're going to add behavior to this data. And now you're going to be sort of saving records, sort of creating, you know, drawings and, and doing transactions, buying things, whatever it is that, 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 that sort of, um, system of concepts is working now. And then it's, it's alive, right? And so DCI, I think, is at the heart of discover architecture. It's no, no accident that this acronym includes DCNI. Um, but basically this is, this is a thing we call a context. And when I write a context, I'm actually um, sort of describing everything that needs to happen within uh, the use case. And then that would be one entity in my code base. It would be this use case context, whatever the use case is, that would be the first part of the name and context would be the second part of the name. And it would list everything that would have to happen for this use case to, to occur, right. For this behavior to, to occur. Um, and to me, that was a really fascinating concept. Uh, what was really interesting for us at, at Tinder, we have a very sort of UI heavy um, application. And this idea of a context, it's very much like a sort of model layer thing. It's like uh, you would call business logic or, or domain logic. You know, people have different sort of names for this, but everything kind of under the hood that is just raw data. And so um, I shouldn't say raw data, but, but, the, but the heart of your application and it's mostly independent of the UI or the presentation. So we had this challenge that we're trying to represent this use case, but we were forced to sort of have some knowledge of the UI in it. And it wasn't really obvious how to pull that out. Um, it kind of became obvious a little later when we started looking at how this works in Viper, for example. And this was like a major um, influence for us where we were able to kind of pull the UX, uh, what we would call the presentation of the use case into something we call a flow. And the flow suddenly was, uh, capable of sort of knowing about the UI and, you know, knowing about UI kit and, and pushing view controllers and doing this, this, uh, actual work of spinning together all of the different pieces that, that need to be there. Um, and it was where we could kind of put it all together. And, uh, we could keep our context pure. And so, um, we, you know, this is kind of the, the, the end result was if you have a flow and a context, all of the other pieces can kind of be where they need to be. They could be of various levels of complexity and you, you might still mix and match different styles or patterns in the UI layer. For example, you might still use MVVM, 
Uh, you might just use MVC. You might use some other um, technique that you've learned about and you'd like to try, but you would always kind of keep this idea of a flow and this idea of a context to map to the user experience and to the actual um, system behaviors. And this is this is the the, uh, the basic idea. So the talk was really just exposing that and trying to make it um, as visual as possible. So we we had these these diagrams just kind of trying to trying to internalize these uh, these models. Yeah, you had uh, you had some really nice slides. I remember you were showing me as you were like making the slides, like check these out. <laughs> and now they so they ended up looking um, really cool. I know that you wrote an article a little while ago on the Tinder Dev website it's up there right is that does that yeah. go in like if somebody wanted to kind of learn about it right now does that go into enough detail about it yeah i think so uh, you can get you can definitely get the uh the high level um motivation there um it's on tech.gotinder.com and it's called the new so- swipe right with swift um so this one talks about how we needed to sort of redesign the application i think the the card stack was being rewritten at the time and uh, we we sort of talk about the Discover architecture. Um, there's some diagrams there that are similar to what I presented at the conference. I think it's actually changed a little bit, but we can always update that. And um, but it's it's actually close enough. And then it describes the roles. And then we talk about a bit of um, Swift things we did, um, which are um, slightly like somewhat related to the architecture, but not directly related to the architecture. And um, so we're talking about earlier um, the relationship between like the Swift language and the architecture. And I really wanted to, to like have some um, strong connection. Um, it's interesting in some ways the architecture definitely shouldn't matter, right? What language you're using, it should be flexible enough. Um, but DCI has an interesting concept called object roles. And these object roles are supposed to be where you would, sort of extend uh, your data with behavior. So I'm saying if I'm in a context and this context is going to do something, the data that I would have normally um, in sort of more traditional object-oriented design, your objects, you know, your model objects would probably have some data with them like properties, but you'd also have a bunch of methods. And some of these methods would, would actually be making modifications to the data and Clean and DCI as architectures both very much kind of reject that idea. I think that's very consistent with Swift language and the use of value types and the use of extensions and then the use of protocols um, and protocol extensions. So this is a big part of Swift. If you look in the standard library, it's it's like the majority of um, how a lot of our common data structures are implemented are using protocols and, and protocol extension and I don't actually know of any other language today that does it with the sort of like Swift hits such a sweet spot with protocol extensions and they're so expressive and you can compose them together and you can, you know, by avoiding the subclassing problem where, you know, you need the, the one base class gives you whatever it gives you. And then if you can hierarchically derive all the behaviors you want, that's great. But that's actually not so, that's not a given, right? That might not actually work out. So um, I don't have an example ready, but but yeah, if you, if you wanted to have, um, you know, depending on what app you're building, um, you, if you wanted to have a subclass of a subclass of a subclass, all um, sort of inheriting functionality, 
um, at some point you're probably going to hit a place where something's already been subclassed in such a way that you cannot um, combine these these things and and that goes away with um, with protocol extensions in Swift and DCI intends to exploit this idea of extending your data so your objects actually become uh, the example they give actually is the matrix, right? You, you plug Neo into the matrix and mm. suddenly he knows Kung Fu. Right. Um, so this is like your data is just data. And then once it's inside of your context, like you get some input to a method and inside of that, um, object, you've extended that, that object to do something specific to that use case. So you might have a method that's available only because it's been extended in that limited scope. And then everywhere else in your code base, you would just see the data again, and you wouldn't necessarily know that somewhere had this this like funky method on it, right? That was that was relevant to that one sort of use case. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to mention in terms of like Swift? Like, what is it about um, you know Swift that makes um, it more fun or easier um, to do? We actually did this. Um, uh, one day at, at work, right? We kind of drew drew all of our all the words or all the letters of discover, mm-hmm. and then we sort uh-huh. of talked about like, okay, here you would do protocol extensions. Here you're doing observation. Like, so what were some of the other like things about Swift that like worked well with Discover? Well, I think the the functional tools and so Swift is great because it has this this very rich functional programming capability. Um, but it's also clearly not a functional language in the sense that it doesn't really constrain you to doing functional programming, right. um, like a lot of functional you know, programming languages do. And um, Swift is very much an object-oriented language. It's actually an imperative language, which um, is almost like a bad word, right? It's, it's, it's um, oh, you write C-style code. It it's, must be terrible. But that's actually not true. I think Swift very much is about clarity and so is uh, DCI or so is Discover, right? These are, we're trying to say, I want a flow to express exactly what's happening in my user experience in order. I want to be able to read it like a script. Um, like I, I was talking to somebody about it after the conference. Um, you know, people were just really um, intrigued and, and had a lot of questions. And I think I had mentioned that at some point, um, I was reading a flow and it felt like uh, a bash script. If you've ever written like a simple bash script, okay. um, it's just super, super uh, simple, right? It's like step one, step two, step three. There's no, there's no way around this code base that, that doesn't make sense, right? It's just like easy to understand. So that clarity at the call site, this is a fundamental, I would say, um, a core value of the Swift language. Right to be, um, you know, not necessarily verbose, but also not so terse that you can't just read the code and it feels very natural. And that's very much what a flow should be doing. Also, that's what a context should be doing. Um, but if you go one level deeper and you look at how we would sort of maybe construct an observer with just Swift um, language features alone, you can implement like really, really um, uh, like flexible and powerful observing uh, with just like property observers and uh, maybe an interactor with Swift functional um, capabilities, you're able to um, build something that you can, you know, we can apply like a command pattern and a builder pattern and we can actually chain our, our methods together and, and do the kind of thing that you see a lot in these sort of, um, you know, this is a different way to build stuff. 
um, conference talks, which are really, really great. Um, so for example, at Summit, there was a, a talk about promises, and this is a very common way to kind of clean up your networking code. And I think, and, and, and I, this was actually the one that was uh, before mine. And I was thinking, yeah, like we could use promises in our interactors and it would keep our, um, our interactor code very simple, but it's, it's, it's great to actually continue to, to utilize sort of Swift's type system to define these roles that all of the major components in our uh, software have a clear role. Like they all have a reason to exist. And it's not just that I can build all of these um, sort of free radical APIs and then just assemble them in a view controller. And to me, that doesn't quite capture the goal, I think, of the architecture and that I can, in a very easy way, sort of assemble everything in a view controller and maybe even keep the view controllers from being very large. But I think it's still very important to like sort of lift the, the, where we put our, um, intention. Like the, like this is the story we want the, to tell. Um, this is what we want the user to experience. This is what the system should do when, uh, these actions are happening. And I love that it actually gives everything a home. And I think that's actually really important. So even though we can write these patterns, and compress the code down to these very, very straightforward, um, small little operations in uh, functional programming and hide a lot of the complexity. Um, I still think it's important to not hide the part of it that really matters, which is the story that you're telling and what we expect the system to do. Um, so that's actually like one of my, one of my, um, my hopes is that we can embrace modern functional programming in a way that really um, continues to, um, to sort of stay true to the sort of object-oriented uh, legacy of, of uh, iOS development. If you could look back to Next and, and Mac OS and, you know, the, the Apple sort of coming back from near uh, bankruptcy in the late 90s and, and even long before that, um, sort of what led to what we now think of as like UIKit, right, and the iOS SDK. Um, it's it's a great story and i and i like my my one of my primary goals was to um continue that like to actually let this be uh, a product of that rather than you know our view controllers is too large so let's reject everything yeah. we ever you know and then then just start all over um and as much as i really love what people have been doing um you know with things like elm and this these these sort of state um state and effect driven functional, um, sort of architectures. Um, I'm seeing how that would fit into this and how this, uh, discover architecture doesn't care. Like it actually respects how you want to build your UI and it's flexible in that way or how you want to structure your, your data itself and, and how the observers are implemented is totally up to you. So some people might love to use RX. Other people might like to use uh, a completely new and different, um, reactive frameworks, or some people might like to implement it directly in, in pure Swift and, um, you know, they could still do discover. Yeah. I like that, um, part of your talk where, I mean, you kind of started with NBC after your sort of intro, then you, you kind of talk about NBC and a lot of people want to bash on NBC and talk about, mm -hmm. you know, that it's bad and NBC is the problem, but I kind of like how you, you were like, well, it's not really, it's almost like it's not MVC's fault. It's like sort of our use of MVC. And also you kind of point out like it's sort of this nebulous model concept. Mm. But one one question I have is 
I mean, you mentioned the creator of MVC, which is sort of like a view uh, architecture, and then you have DCI, which is like I think you were mentioning is more of like a system architecture or mm-hmm. or like a non-view based architecture. Mm-hmm. So, like, my feeling is that maybe um, Discover uh, is one of the first like architectures that is specific for iOS apps. Like, what of these other architectures were actually created for an iOS application? Were any of them? I I think Viper as a modification of Clean was very much uh, iOS driven, and you know so there so that definitely was uh, was kind of coming out of iOS. I think um, the uh, the the detail of that. I think um, how interactors are are sort of hanging off of um, a, con- a controller or a presenter. I should say, um, sort of gave me some concern. Like I couldn't quite grapple with the fact that the code that I'm saying is so important, which is what's sitting in, in an interactor, which is what the system is actually doing. Um, that if this is, becomes like something that needs to do some multi-view presentation or actually get it gets into a flow, um, what they call a flow in, um, in Viper, most of what you see online is calling it a wireframe or a router. And what, ha- what happens is you end up spinning up new presenters and having sort of new interactors and, and potentially, uh, you don't have this sort of concept of a, of a process that's running. Um, but it's more like being kind of moved around and, and led by the, by the UI. Um, at the end of the day, we're, we're still kind of led by the UI, right? The flow is in, in front of what would be happening in a context. So it was as much as we tried to make it all work in the domain side of the fence, uh, or the, the domain side of the world, I think it was, it was really important for us to bring it back to the UI side. And, um, but what we ended up with was something much better because we had a first class, um, sort of high level feature, um, scoped wrapper, like a use case flow and a use case context. And these things, um, it just, it's just where, where you, anything important has to go in there. And you know that. And, and, and so th- I think for us that, that really helped. Um, clarify how we structure our code. I don't know if that answered your question. Uh, no, I mean, it, <laughs> I, it does in a way. I mean, essentially, yeah. like, I mean, MVC well, wasn't created for iOS apps. Neither yeah. was DCI. And let's talk about, let's we do a re- quick recap. So so MVVM was not created for iOS. It was something that came out of, like, the C-sharp world. And when people kind of came over from .NET to iOS, they thought, oh, yeah, we could use these view models Um but view models actually had a legacy that kind of, I think, came a little bit before that, which is to say that um, they were the output of a presenter in uh, the clean architecture. So in that world, they were just data. Um, so I kind of make a point of like of, of mentioning, like, it's really not clear how from, you know, if, if you look at its data origins, which is just a simple sort of almost like a struct if we're talking about script uh, in terms of Swift. Um, this little thing that's just data that's going to be displayed became the sort of driver of an application in, in, um, in the iOS community. And this is by far the most popular architecture. And um, actually, a lot of people expanded on um, MVVM and added coordinators or flow controllers and, and did different things with it. And, and there's a lot of great ways to, to apply MVVM, and people are pretty happy using it. Um, for me, I thought uh, I'd really like to have uh, clearly something on in, you know, in the business logic side of the world and something in the presentation side of the world. And it was never really clear where it, where is the, where's the view model actually live? And I, I'm pretty sure that 
this this thing just cuts right through a view model and and it's it's really combining presentation and domain logic in uh, our business logic in in many many um, applications so not to say that you have to do it that way but because it doesn't give strong guidance about uh, whether or not we are in the presentation or domain it gets mixed up and so i really wanted to set it up such that it was totally clear and you know there would be very little to to sort of there would be very little guessing about where something goes you should be able to have a quick conversation with yourself or your colleagues and you're, you're going to say, yeah, that's definitely something that would happen in a flow. That's definitely something that could happen in a context. And then if you're talking about view controllers, I think it becomes uh, a matter of how, like, what, you know, what is kind of the view programming style you're choosing? And, um, you know, for us, we can still talk about some things that can stay in a view controller and some things that would kind of move to a flow. Um, but it would be, it would be, um, not incorrect to do, one way or the other. And the good news is when your architecture is well-structured, it's a lot easier to refactor something, right? To move something sort of one click away. Um, and maybe if you're, if you've done a good job, you don't even really have to update any tests. Um, and that's just, just kind of, a, a result of things being, if they're not in the sort of exact right place, and I'm kind of doing air quotes there, but just because there's really not a wrong way to do things if they're working you can make a pretty strong case that it's fine, right? Because the user's getting the value that they expect. Um, but of course, we want to we want to make it clearer. We want to make it better. We want to make it more fault tolerant, and we want to make those view controllers or views possibly reusable in ways that wouldn't really happen if we were strongly. So, if the view controller knows about its flow, or if it knows about the context, it's going to be harder to reuse that view controller somewhere else if it's part of a different flow or a different context. So, you know, we were able to just say, well, then it doesn't know about anything. And all it can do is, uh, you know, call these closures and, and, and we can, we can do whatever we need to do, um, in terms of routing, presentation, even updating the view if we need to. Um, that, uh, yeah. the, the fact that we can just have these closures in a view controller and, uh, the view controller will just call those closures and then whoever owns the view controller, let's say maybe a flow, um, mm -hmm. can um, actually set those closures. I feel like, that's kind of a cool thing about Swift, uh, and I'm not sure if other uh, programming languages have that ability. Um, may maybe they do, but I, I think that's a really cool thing. I mean, maybe Objective-C did it. Um, well, one thing I also liked about your talk was about was how you made it about us. You said us a lot, what we did. Um, you know, I, I, you and I, before you gave the talk, we, we, we went through your, your slides, we went through your talk a lot. Um, but that was actually the first time, you know, I really saw it um, from afar and, and you made it about what we're doing. Uh, so how much of this would you say is, um, you know, specific to, to Tinder or, um, or, or how much of this are you saying is like, hey, you guys can do this too or something like this? Yeah, I mean, none of this is specific to Tinder. I would say the what's specific to Tinder is the problem we were trying to solve needed something like this in that it was just complex enough that it wasn't going to work with some of these um, sort of existing architectures. Um, or I'll just say that it wasn't going to come out the way I was really hoping it would come out. Mainly, I wanted each feature to have its own sort of, um, I wanted it to be a use case or a feature to have its own uh, implementation that I wanted to encapsulate these features. And to a certain degree, I wanted to isolate them from each other 
um, where it's relevant. Like in some cases that wouldn't make sense, but, um, in Tinder, we've got, uh, this very simple screen. You have a card stack, you're swiping on recommendations. You have these buttons underneath and they each sort of tie into a very different, um, behavior. And some of those were implemented, uh, you know, from scratch over, over months, right? These are, these are major features. And at the end of the day, there's a button on the screen. Hmm. And for us to say that they share a screen, therefore their code should live together. It's actually like absolutely not the right. That just doesn't work. So I really needed to say, if I'm looking at screens, that cannot be how we organize our code, right? We have to organize our code by features. This is, this was the key. And so if we agree on that, and then we also agree that we want to separate our UI code from our sort of business code, we're, we're almost inevitably going to be, um, drawn to this or a very similar, um, solution. And so the key visual, I think, was the moment we figured out that, you know, we could slice our application code was kind of like the, the, low level sort of container, the navigation, you know, just stuff that's just the application itself, logging in, that kind of thing. Separate that from the use cases and then separately separate presentation from business logic. And you end up with these four quadrants and that in these quadrants, you've got, you know, your flow and your views living in this use case presentation zone. And you've got this kind of high level um, app flow and uh, session sort of container, like something you think of as like, your tab bar controller plus your sort of login logic um, and your app delegate, right? All kind of in this application layer of presentation. And then your um, your services and your app context, which is effectively all of your dependencies that you're using. And these dependencies are very sort of lightweight and they don't know about the application, but they know about networking or they know about persistence or they know about user defaults or whatever it is. That, that those are all kind of wrapped up in this high level object and then injected down when you need them as a dependency for an interactor to actually make an API request. It's going to need some sort of a network service, right? And so, um, so we ended up with a similar split of domain applicate, like application domain code, which is that those dependencies and like use case domain code, which would be our context interactors and observers. So that's kind of like why we end up with this with this uh, diagram, which is split top to bottom and then also split left and right. And we end up with these four zones of, of essentially like the layers of the application. Um, you you yeah. sort of already uh, touched on this a little bit, but one of the other things I really liked about um, not necessarily the talk, because you actually didn't, I feel like you didn't mention it that much at the talk, but um, you, you kind of just mentioned it now, which is like you only need to use um, certain like discover kind of calls for a few things like they they have to sort of exist and discover but then other things are sort of like um, build as you go and so like let's mm -hmm. say your context gets really big you might split some of that work into an interactor or a couple mm -hmm. interactors that's right um, and a lot of the other things are just sort of external like modules or, or services or, or frameworks or, or dependencies like libraries that mm -hmm. they're sort of outside of, of the actual app. Um, but like when it comes down to like the basic components, um, you have your view, which um, we're doing like, you know, UI view and, and UI view controller. Um, and maybe you have like a view model in there. That's up to you. doesn't really matter. Um, and then the thing sort of owning 
the view is the flow. And um, the flow is sort of like a, a high level, you know, it's kind of like a high level object. It, it creates view controllers. It might resolve, you know, dependencies. Um, it might like own a context, I think. Um, but really it's like that, it's, so you have your view, then you have a flow and you have a context. And it's like really those are like the big objects. And then everything else kind of like the interactors and, um, well, then you have your entities, obviously, like all your uh, sure. your model objects. And well, we'll always have that, right? There's no way around that. Yeah, like you have your model objects. But that was something I really liked. Um, and it's like you kind of just build as you go. And like, so you might look at this slide, like when you post your slides, you have that one kind of slide at the end that it's like all these boxes, you know, uh-huh. and you're kind of like, whoa, that seems like a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. But I feel like it's really good to point out and remember that, um, yeah, you, you only need them as you go, like if you need them, right? So Yeah. And it's also good to remember, like if you look at an MVC diagram, there's three there's three bubbles, right? Um, the the app delegate is not pictured. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or your 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 actual domain objects may or may not be um, properly represented in a single bubble called model, right? There might be a bunch of those, or there might be those plus the things that actually like make those, um, behave. Um, you know, your, your, probably your managers or services, um, that, that do some of the other things that, that the system needs to do. Um, so none of the diagrams are actually, uh, really a complete picture of the system. Most of these are usually looking at a single module. It's saying, okay, here's sort of one view and it's internals. And so the way I would draw clean architecture is just one module. The way you draw Viper, it's one module. The way you've seen MVVM pictured um, online and, and, you know, in different diagrams, it's just one module. And the, the, the version of Discover that just breaks down the, the view controller flow context interactor um, and then the optional pieces, which would be like the view model and the observer, that would be like also one module. And then the big slide you're talking about is the one that kind of presents what it would look like to have an application and one of these modules. And then imagine if you had now adding, you're adding a second module and a third module. And when I say module now, I mean use case, right? Another feature, another feature, another feature. And each time you're going to keep that top level slice and you're going to add one more of these bottom slices. And then so you just assemble those. So it is a little bigger because... Imagine your Xcode project, if you expand all of the groups on the left in the navigator, and you're probably going to have anywhere from, oh, who knows, like a simple project's going to have 40, 50 classes at least, right? And then a big project can have hundreds. So um, this diagram that that is kind of showing us 16 um, sort of objects is ultra simplified also, but it even is, is a lot to take in if you're just looking at this diagram and you're trying to figure out how to write your code. Um, my biggest advice to somebody who's trying to do this, even if they're doing it, if you're doing this with your own architecture is just kind of have something that you can think of at the, at the forest level and then, and then have a different diagram for your tree level. Right. So, so see the big picture and then you can kind of zoom in and blow up one piece of it and, and see what it looks like internally and kind of think of those, um, high level views and low level sort of implementation, in such a way that you can kind of construct that in your in your mind. You can understand, oh, to get from here to there, I shouldn't have to jump from this file to that file more than like one time or two times, right? There shouldn't be too much jumping around to figure out what's going to happen next because you're probably asking a question like, okay, if I click this button, what's going to happen? 
And so that's like, great. I, I call it closure. It, the flow gets, you know, something's going to land on in the flow, some action, the flow might call into a context. It might do something. It might come back with a response and the flow could update the view or the view can update itself. If you're doing more of a reactive style. Um, what the other thing I want to mention is that you talked about this just a moment ago that you kind of have your minimum uh, requirements, which is kind of like this view view controller piece, this flow piece, and this context piece. Right. Think about MVC. If you go back and you squint your eyes and you look at these now as not uh, single objects, but actually like roles, like large classes of stuff, you could almost kind of say that the view controller in the MVC diagram or the controller is our flow and that we're kind of pushing the view controller into the view layer, right? So... So if you have the MVC diagram, but you just have view, flow, and context where normally you would write model, it's actually interesting because you could make the case that this is just a scaled down version or a scaled up version of MVC where we're kind of just just um, dissecting the, the controller to say, oh, it's a flow or it's a system of flows that are nested. And each of these is kind of a, a single feature or use case in the application. And I could think of my context as my model. Like the, the, the capital M, like, you know, the model for this use case. And I can think of my view controller as my view. Right. And in a lot of ways, we're just doing MVC, um, where we've renamed some of these things. Yeah. And you're, but that was necessary, right? Because model has lost its meaning and controller has all but lost its meaning. And we actually have these, these other goals of not necessarily just tying to, um, a controller and a model for a single UI, which was kind of how MVC was, was intended, uh, but we want to do that at the level of this use case, and this is like the key. Yeah, so you're giving more definition to your model by introducing a context, and maybe the context actually relies on little m model mm-hmm. things and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. things that go, you know, save those models somewhere or fetch those models somewhere. Um, yeah, and then V becomes just view and view controller, um, almost the kind of how like MVVM calls for it. Yeah, and then C becomes like a coordinator or a, or a flow or a flow controller. I, I see that. Um, okay, what what else would you say? And we're coming towards the end uh, the end here. Like, what would you say? Uh, is there actually? Let's talk a little bit. You, you mentioned it a little bit before, but like reactions. Were there any other reactions that kind of stood out? I remember after your talk, you were talking to one person in particular for a while. Were, what was like the general reaction that you got? Um, what, were there some specific reactions that stood out? Is there anything there? Yeah, I mean, people were excited. They had questions. Um, there were questions about what we were doing. They had questions about what they were doing and trying to sort of put it in a perspective. Um, and I was very careful to make sure no one felt like they were doing anything wrong. I think it's really, um, this is really one solution um, I know there's there's a lot of ways to kind of approach these things. I did notice like some people were doing a lot of um, sort of very, I would kind of compare to like the Java way of of you know building out repositories and and interfaces and it's very classical kind of um, how you have to inject all your dependencies and um, you know I, I actually was talking to them a lot about mocking and, and how much how how we're able to avoid a lot of mocking. Um, <clears throat> simply because we limit what we inject to these services and those services are very lightweight. So we don't actually have, um, sprawling protocols that, that cover, you know, every, uh, every sort of dependency. Um, we're, we're using the protocols where we need them to make everything testable. 
I think we achieve a very uh, high level of testability, but also where we're a lot of the what we're doing is to actually avoid dependencies altogether where we don't need them, like where, for example, where the views don't have a concept of a flow or a concept of a context. And so we're able to do uh, snapshot testing without actually mocking anything at all. We can just put data in and snapshot and we get what we want. This is mainly for testing layouts. Obviously, it's not not the best example, but when we're doing interactor testing, we have to inject the services and and that is looks more like a traditional um, TDD uh, dependency injection kind of um, setup. Um, but a lot of the flow and uh, context, we would be testing them integrated uh, with their actual interactors um, doing the thing, and we would continue to inject uh, the services. Um, so that was like a lot of the discussion was kind of how how the dependencies are set up. But, you know, other people were show, were comparing notes. Um, uh, somebody had done a similar um, sort of uh, experiment where they had they had kind of put together a, a variation of um, MVC or MVVM or whatever they whatever they were um, exposed to and had their own acronym and it was it was pretty cool just to hear about um, other people's uh, similar stories so I, I thought that was really cool that it seemed to touch um, like some piece of everybody's experience so that you know that made it more approachable I think for everyone yeah I remember someone came up to me and said um, you know I really liked Carl's talk and I'm actually he felt like he was doing like kind of a something very similar like maybe he had different names for it or yeah or that that was really interesting um, maybe what we um, well my guess is that you want you you know not it sounds kind of weird but like you have high hopes for discover um i do um so like do you have any plans for like what to do next um like obviously maybe the your talk at swift summit will go up maybe the slides will go up somewhere um maybe we'll update a blog post um you know maybe we should put out like a seminal sort of example what are your thoughts there yeah i think we could use a sample um some sort of a small sample project um I do think the risk of the sample project is usually it's going to be like one use case. So we could do something like that where there's one use case and, and you at least see everything um, sitting where it needs to sit. And my guess is we'll probably need to do something slightly less than the simple sort of to-do app, right? Where typically you have um, one other screen to create an object and then you would just save it and then it would update a list or whatever. And I don't think you really get the benefit of, um, you don't see the architecture actually sort of, it doesn't shine in that scenario, I think. Although I would say that you're, if you were to use it, um, when you build your first, um, version of your app and your, the app's only doing one thing, it's absolutely worth it to do something like this. Um, that's designed from the very beginning to take on new features and take on new functionality without going back and having to like refactor your existing code. So um, I, I would say a sample project would be a key thing. And then I'd love to follow up and do some, some live coding demos um, at the next great conference. I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll see kind of what the future holds, but um, the other thing I can guarantee is that we're going to um, sort it out at Tinder. We're going to make sure that it's, that it's um, battle tested. Nice. Yeah. And um, so you kind of just mentioned real quick about like if you were to build out your first use case, you're doing a small app like and you're interested in trying it out, like you kind of do recommend someone 
um, doing this work up front because it'll it, assuming that they want to add features or the, or they're pretty sure they're going to add features in the future um, to because this uh, allows you to add that new use case pretty easily. My guess is um, where most of that work is happening is sort of in maybe like your high level flow. Like let's say you have your app flow mm-hmm. and then you have uh, inside your app flow, you might have a login flow and then uh, you might also have like a session flow. And then inside that session flow, you might have like your first use case flow, like post a photo or, or view mm-hmm. view photo flow or something like that. And then you want to now let, you know, months go by and you want to let users um, post a photo that's probably where you would kind of start adding that new use cases inside of your um, session flow, like you want to do a post post photo flow. And so maybe is that sort of where most of that work would be going, um, upfront work would be going into, kind of in building in this sort of flow hierarchy? Yeah, I think flow hierarchy is the, the really big um, first step, right? So you're going to have, um, initially you're going to have an app delegate and you're going to have a view controller. And what you want to do is basically slice between those two things and put that app flow in there. Um, you want some sort of uh, app context to to hold on to your dependencies for you, so you avoid uh, making singletons out of everything. And then we can kind of build out um, that first step. So if you just have an app flow in your view controller initially, that's actually not bad. I mean, you, if you if you need to build out a whole login probably go ahead and slice it again and put your login stuff there and then let your um, when you're when you have a user session going and you have some sort of like a, a valid um, credential go ahead and um, sort of create that first um, use case and you know view photo post photo that kind of thing it, it, you might you might just think of it as a feature that you're building a photos app so you would you would have your like photos right and what is the what is the sort of user experience of photos. And if, if the answer is, you know, you're looking at a feed, um, maybe that's enough, um, to give it its own flow, right? If, if you have a feed and some of the buttons you press will be, um, sort of presenting other screens maybe there's a comment or there's, there's, um, you know, some sort of, some sort of, um, interaction with the content, right? You want to, pause and stop your videos or, or, you know, go to a full screen presentation for this or, you know, for looking at photos in detail. Um, something that has more than just, it's a view and there's data on the screen. Like one of the things that really, um, I don't know, I, <laughs> I just, I just want to say that I, I don't think of what we build as elaborate, um, screens to present JSON data, right? Mm. I, I've heard that thing before where it's like, oh, we're just, we just build, we just build a JSON presentation. Sometimes you know, I feel like, that way. Yeah. Like database yeah. browsers. Yeah. I think that's fine. I think there are apps that can be that simple and, and maybe you could even argue that they don't need this, but from, from my limited experience, like, uh, we're doing, I, I'm trying to figure out, figure out how to like express this. I've worked on, uh, four or five different apps. And so far, none of them has qualified as, as an elaborate JSON presentation. Um, there's always something more. There's always something rich. And the re, that what makes an app an app, in my view, is that rich UX, you know, that you're doing something, um, really complicated on a very, in a very small space. And to me, that's actually more difficult to do well. Um, if I had a, a desktop, 
you know, or, or a full web browser and, and all the screen real estate. Um, you can really um, separate things easily. You can have navigation and, and the user can go and really do one thing on one screen. And maybe a view-driven architecture there could work really well. I'm not sure. I would probably still think about some of these things. But, um, you know, long story short, I've, I've never viewed a mobile app as something that was just a, a, a little thin, skinny front end in, in front of some API, right? That all we have to do is get this data on the screen. There's just so much more to it. And so I think this kind of thing, um, it, it creates itself because if you don't do this, you have these problems. And, um, I, I forget who was it. Uh, I think it was Christoph who interviewed with you. We talked about pain, uh, uh, driven development, <laughs> pain, um, pain. Yeah. Like pain, PDD, like pain driven development. Like if you if you have pain in some place, you're going to solve that problem. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, uh, very much why this exists and, and that if we didn't do this we we were definitely um, gonna have trouble scaling this um, you know adding new features maintaining the code keeping bugs out of the code this kind of thing um, of course we're still gonna have to solve those problems but we have a better sort of infrastructure in place to do that right on well I look forward to playing around with this in my personal projects and obviously doing this work with you at tinder uh, we're definitely like uh out of time but before we go i just want to ask did you get an iphone 10 yet i did nice how are yeah. you liking it i i love it so i'm i'm uh i'm looking at it right now i i kept telling people this is uh this is basically like a, a brick of light in my hand i i'm i just love how what used to be these bezels are now interactive screen and um, yeah, like the one thing I was noticing when you try to rearrange your, um, icons on the home screen mm -hmm. and, you know, it used to be like you would, you would hit the, the button, you know, to, to like lock in your choices, you know, after right. you move stuff around. Right. And I, and I kept trying to like find that button. I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> the button's gone. But now it's like this little, um, done button in the, um, in the top right corner. Right. So anyway, I, I, I I'd love it. I, I think it's a great um, but direction for, for the iPhone. It, you can swipe up actually um, when they're oh. when they're wiggling. Just uh -huh. just kind of do a swipe up like where you would normally um, do the home. Oh yeah, that's like, cool. Like uh, now, how you go home basically, and you just swipe up and you're done. Okay, that totally works. I like that. Yeah, because uh, people. Thank you for that. Yeah, people were actually like one person was like saying something about the done button and the way the placement and the way it looks and he was kind of like talking bad about it um because it you know it kind of does look kind of funny up there um but anyways like now you don't really have to think about it you just kind of swipe up and you're you're done um yeah yeah i've been playing I, I, go ahead i was just gonna say i look forward to, to to running the iphone 10 and building you know all the new stuff in the iphone 10 yeah 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 Tinder looks great on iPhone 10, by the way. Yeah. 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 Um, this phone is amazing. Um, it's just like, wow. It's like, I feel like I'm just holding the future. It's really crazy. Okay, Garo, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today and, uh, you know, chatting about our experience at uh, Swift Summit. Had a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it, just, it, was, it was really great just, you know, being able to, to be up there together and also to be at Swift Summit again um, and get just got a lot of positive uh, feedback uh, from people and yeah thank you for telling us about you know a little bit more about your talk and i also 
um, look forward again to you know, you know, kind of seeing where this goes and also being a part of the development of it. Absolutely. Thanks, Gary. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends. <laughs>